Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name's Peter Murray and I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined by my colleagues Dave Porter. Hello Dave. Hi Pete. And by Jeremy Craddock. Hi Jez. Hi Pete. And in this episode, this is episode seven now of the podcast and apologies first of all that we skipped a week back there but we're back today and we're looking at what for some of us is the central skill in media law, reporting from court. In fact, I just hot-footed it back, why I'm breathless, I'm hot-footed it back from Magistrates Court in the centre of the city where our post-grad students have been observing proceedings for the first time. Quite a varied um, sort of uh, summary of cases, but uh, um, interesting days, I think, for all of them. It was an interesting session, range of cases, and some of them actually might well be writing up reports for the MMU Journalism News website, the Northern Quota, over the next day or so. So if and when that happens, we'll post lo- links up on the Twitter Bang to Rights um, feed, which is rightsbang, at rightsbang. And do tweet us with any comments on the show or questions about any issues that you'd like us to cover in future programmes. So we'll be giving over part of this episode to an interview I did earlier with Richard Jones. He's a lecturer in journalism at the University of Huddersfield and he's researching court reporting for his PhD. He's got some really interesting things to say on how the courts could bring themselves into the 21st century by modernising the rules around recording and photographing inside court. We'll come to that in just a moment but first Dave and Jez what have you been watching or reading or looking at this week? Uh, Jez what have you been looking at? Yeah a couple of things really. Um, First of all it was last week actually but I noticed that Google, uh, Google's UK boss Ronan Harris said um, publicly that the company was ready to partner with the Cairncross review over you know looking at how they might be able to contribute to uh, sustainability of quality journalism um, although there was no statement on whether, you know, what their feeling would be on a potential tax on tech firms, right. you know, yeah. contributing back yeah. to uh, back to the news industry. Um, I was wondering if we'd get through an episode of the podcast <laughs> without mentioning the Cairn Cross <laughs> review, but there we no, are. So that, that was last week, which yeah, um, yeah. Sort of, no interesting. But also, yeah. sort of kind of relating to this this week, really, was the um, the Tommy Robinson contempt yeah. of court um, yeah. case, which obviously been referred to the Attorney General. Um, obviously, he alleged to have been filming people outside court, um, you know, in breach of Section Forty One. Um, and initially, the plan was that that would be heard before a judge rather yeah. than yes. rather than sent up to the Attorney General. I think his defence team asked for it to be sent to the the AG, didn't didn't they? Mm-hmm. I believe so. Um, yeah, so it kind of you know relates to what we're talking about a bit today as well. Um, but yeah, in- interesting uh, debate around you know trying to challenge the way courts are run and obviously Tommy Robinson's agenda. Um, yeah, yeah. behind all that yeah yeah so we'll, we'll come on to a little bit more of that <clears throat> when we when we hear from Richard Jones um, later on in the mm. podcast Dave what about yourself um just some so uh, new guidelines that I thought was quite interesting on reporting of sex offenses and really geared towards protecting uh, victims anonymity which of course as we know you know section one uh, sexual offenses act every mm-hmm. journalist knows that mm-hmm. and students mm-hmm. um but really, kind of, uh, I would imagine stuff we do already, but the kind of have three suggestions, which is, you know, one, moderate online comments, um, two, disable reader comments on court cases, which I would imagine most, if not all, news organisations do. As mm-hmm. I know a lot of them do, um, just for the sake of, you know, um, the laws around contempt and, and sex offences. Uh, and three, you know, they're, they're suggesting it so to, to news publishers not to provide links to social media platforms um, 
Which is interesting, and I can see where they're coming from. Um, but it shows, you know, a the dangers of social media and how we're caught in the middle yeah. as journalists, really. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, for me, I suppose the, the thing that I've been looking at, it's emerged this week that the government's considering changing statutory regulations around what are known as non-disclosure agreements. Um, these are contracts which forbid someone from saying anything in public which an individual or a company has decided might damage their reputation or harm their commercial interests. Critics say they're being used as gagging devices to stop people blowing the whistle on malpractice, sexual harassment, bullying or other illegal activity. And this follows a ruling at the Court of Appeal in which the master of the roles, Sir Terence Etherton, now he's the senior judge in the civil division of the High Court, granted an injunction against the Daily Telegraph which prevents it reporting what it says are allegations of sexual harassment and racial abuse involving a leading businessman. The issue came up at Prime Minister's question on, uh, on Wednesday in an exchange between Theresa May and the Birmingham Yardley MP, Jess Phillips. Thank you, Mr Speaker. It seems that our laws allow rich and powerful men to pretty much do whatever they want as long as they can pay to keep it quiet. So does the Prime Minister support the Court of Appeal's decision to back non-disclosure agreements which have been used to silence women who have been sexually harassed and others who have been racially abused? What can I say to the uh, Honourable Member that she will understand that I can't comment on a particular case that is currently before the courts. What I will say what I have said previously is that sexual harassment in the workplace is against the law. Such abhorrent behaviour should not be tolerated. And an employer that allows that harassment of women to go undealt with is sending a message about how welcome they are and about their value in the, uh, in the workplace. So just as we won't accept any behaviour that causes people to feel intimidated or humiliated in the workplace, there must be consequences for failing to comply with the law. Non-disclosure agreements cannot stop people from whistleblowing, uh, but it is clear some employers are using them unethically. And the Government is going to bring forward measures for consideration, for consultation, to seek to improve the regulation around non-disclosure agreements and make it absolutely explicit to employees when a non-disclosure agreement does not apply or cannot be enforced. That's Theresa May I'm responding to a question um, from Jess Phillips, MP. Now, we were going to begin with a whole elaborate discussion about the, the court ruling and um, how it was keeping the, the, the blanket over everything. But just very, very soon after we finished recording the podcast, what happened? But Peter Hayne, former leader of the House of Commons, stepped up in the House of Lords and used his parliamentary privilege in that arena to name the businessman as Sir Philip Green. Uh, so let's hear a little bit of that parliamentary privilege governing what um, Peter Hayne was able to say. Someone intimately involved in the case of a powerful businessman using non-disclosure agreements and substantial payments to conceal the truth about serious and repeated sexual harassment, racist abuse and bullying, which is compulsively continuing. I feel it's my duty under parliamentary privilege to name Philip Green as the individual in question, given that the media have been subject to an injunction preventing publication of the full details of a story which is clearly in the public interest. So that's Peter Hayne in the House of Lords. Um, bit of a shocker. So Dave's with me here. Um, Jess has had to go home. But Dave, what's, what was your reaction to that when you, when you saw the story breaking just a, a little while ago? 
Uh, wow, yeah, amazed, <laughs> uh, so quick. I mean, uh, we were talking before, actually, um, about the possibility that this could be a, a Ryan Giggs kind of scenario, yeah. where if you cash your minds back and his law students look back in an, in an e-media law book, they'd see the whole issue around not just injunctions, but super injunctions. Um, I don't think this is a super injunction, but when uh, the Ryan Giggs affair happened and you know they wanted to reveal details of his affairs, etc., etc., then John Hemming, who was, I think, Lib Dem, stood up in, in the House uh, and did the same thing as Peter Hayne. And, and and his argument was that, you know, injunctions and super injunctions particularly, which is what Giggs had, were an affront uh, to the democratic process and that they were, you know, rich people using the courts, as kind of Jess Phillips said yesterday, to suppress information about themselves. And it was anti-democratic. It's interesting that he used public interest as, as his defence for, for exposing this, because mm. that was um, in the original case back in August when the Telegraph uh, challenged the, the attempt to get the injunction and they won um, Justice Haddon Cave he invoked public interest as saying that, that this shouldn't be suppressed and so that was the decision that was overturned earlier this week so Peter Hayne by invoking public interest saying that this, this stuff should come out um, interesting that he should do that and it's also interesting one of the some of the reactions that we're, we're hearing people saying that these injunctions now in the, in the kind of social media era are just rich people throwing good money after bad Maybe, but uh, interestingly, you know, I, I think we, we came to the conclusion earlier that actually social media was not as febrile as it might have been. Um, but yeah, social media, but also actually, you know, um, the power of the commons, the power of parliament acting really in a way on behalf of the press to, to fight the courts. They're now pretty much on a, on a you know, collision course with the courts, as they often are, really. Um, we're hidebound, we seem to be hidebound until they... Telegraph spent a long time this investigation. Um, we're not getting very far. As you said, the first court case was public interest. Uh, and now an MP steps in and just basically undercuts everybody else, or a lord rather. A lord, so yeah. it's very, very interesting, you know, from a uh, almost from a constitutional point of view, you know, uh, the fourth estate, etc., and, uh, and the, the role of courts and the role of parliament and which takes precedence and how one can undercut the other because of parliamentary privilege. It raises lots of very interesting questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose one of the practical questions that the uh, the judges, when they made this decision, they said that one of the reasons for holding, su suppressing the information was it would cause serious financial damage to the company. So that's one thing that's going to be interesting. What's Because um, Sir Philip Green's reputation is not as glossy now as it might no, have been a little while I, ago. I, I'd go so far as to say, you know, he's, he's a publicly derided figure because... Um, especially from the press's point of view, is something of a hate figure, yeah. given his, you know, I suppose, appearances before the Commons and his disdain apparent for, you know, the, the selling off of BHS, etc., etc. Yeah. Et yeah. So um, it's almost like a grudge match in that respect yeah. between the press and Green. It will be interesting to see how this develops over the next few days and how much detail comes out on the you know, the revelation, so to speak, and whether it does become our Me Too. Yep, which is one of the things that the judges themselves were looking at, and they also wanted a quick decision from mm. uh, over the, the full injunction. They wanted it to be done quickly. The court case should be heard quickly, precisely because I think they were worried that something like this this was going to happen. So so we, we'll leave it at that for today. Um, very, very fast-moving story, I think. Um, and uh, if, you've, if you've got a view on these injunctions or super injunctions, remember you can tweet at us at RightsBang. Let us know what you think. But now we'll go back to where we 
were in the, in the podcast, back to that interview I mentioned at the top of the show with Richard Jones from the University of Huddersfield, because it goes without saying that not all court cases, and even ones as rarefied as this, make the sorts of headlines that we've been talking about today. Richard Jones thinks that some of the reasons for that have to do with the historic restrictions which the justice system imposes on journalists working in court, which prevent us from using some of the digital tools which we take for granted in so much of our working lives. And he's made a submission about it too. Guess what? The Cairn Cross Review. Seems like we really can't let an episode go without mentioning it. Um, but anyway, although Richard works in Huddersfield, he lives nearby to me in Salford. And so when I went to meet him, he told me the focus of his submission was mainly on how the courts are reported in the local press. The big picture really is that I think that um, journalism in the courts in our local media is still going, it's still important, but it is under threat, like a lot of the local media. And I think that if we're serious about trying to preserve that and keep it going, and plenty of people in government and the legal world, they talk a pretty good game about that, about open justice and transparency. I think it's time to help the media and help journalists a bit by maybe easing some of the restrictions around their work and just generally making it a bit uh, easier for them to create you know, great stories, great content for their papers. Let's come to some of that in a little while, but one of the things that I guess that people have been lobbying for over the, the last few months and around Cairncross is getting more reporters in court. So is it a matter of getting people into the courts, getting reporters into the courts and persuading editors that there are stories there? Is, is that the issue, just boots on the ground? There's a bit of that. I think one of the things that's happened is that um, the old model of having uh, freelancers and agencies covering a lot of the courts day in and day out has completely collapsed. Um, that has come about because newspapers just don't have the freelance budgets anymore um, to pay those guys. So the, all the reporters that I spoke to, and I spoke to reporters across the country, they work for newspapers, they say that they will go weeks, months without seeing anybody else from any other organisation um, in the court, especially in the magistrate's court. Um, and that ranges from some people say, OK, I might see a broad someone from the broadcasters here once in a while. Others say, I, I virtually never see anybody. So what that means is we're really relying almost entirely now on local papers to cover our local courts. And I think that's a bit of a worry given the state of the local press market. And so you, part of your solution is to make the stories more interesting and particularly probably to make them more interesting online as well so you don't just have a shot of the front, the, the, the crest in the court or whatever and people walking out or whatever, you can get inside and that means updating a whole lot of rules and regulations, doesn't it? Yeah, um, there's a couple of things about this. One of them is that the way that the court stories are often done in the local press is because of the, the rule that says that you can't take photos in the precincts of a court Court reporters now have to sneak out of court because they don't have a, a professional photographer maybe with them. They have to sneak past the defendant who is probably chuntering away to themselves about how they're unhappy at just having been fined or whatever. They have to then kind of go outside onto the street, take a kind of surreptitious photo, a bit blurry on their phone, and then kind of sneak back inside. Some reporters I spoke to quite relish that. Others admit that it quite often gets a bit spicy outside court when they're being confronted. Uh, one, I remember, said to me, you know, quite candidly that she has teed up the security staff of the court to keep an eye on her, um, you know, in case anything kind of develops. I don't think that's great for anybody. I don't think it's great for the journalists. And I don't think it's great, actually, in terms of content, because you, if you look at any local paper website, you see an awful lot of poor quality images. And I think that it would be far better if um, those old restrictions, which date from 1925, banning photography in the court, were lifted, perhaps, and that we had some kind of very limited amount of photography available within courtrooms. So um, journalists could you know, still use their phones, but perhaps 
at certain times take a take a higher quality image um, of a defendant um, during the case, and then they'd be able to use that in their stories, which would make them more interesting online. So it's it's in, it would be unobtrusive, and we, we're allowed to do a little bit of that now. We're allowed to text from court. We're allowed to tweet from court. So things are. Do you think things are moving in the right direction? Well, I think that the texting and tweeting sort of aspect, it's really interesting because um, the change there came about through some real clarity of guidance given by the then Lord Chief Justice, Lord Judge in 2011, who said, yep, tweeting in court is absolutely fine. That has had a big impact on the way that local journalists are able to operate because they very rarely have any problems with doing that now. Up until that point, if you got your phone out in court, in the most part, people would immediately challenge you. Now, because of that guidance given by Lord Judge, it has completely changed. And if there's one aspect of this that it's really, really been great help to journalists, it is that clear guidance. I think that I don't need to sort of roll back the law so much as give clarity of guidance around perhaps giving limited audio recording using your smartphones or limited um, photography. As I say, I think that for bona fide journalists sitting on a press bench, I think that is something that, that we should consider. The other area where I think there's some cause for optimism about that, uh, optimism about that is that we've now got a, a pool of TV of, of broadcasters who are filming judgments, the, the del- delivery of judgments at the appeal court. And so most recently we heard um, Lord Burnett laying down, uh, we, we heard and saw him making his judgment in the anti-fracking case. Let's just have a quick listen to that now. An immediate custodial sentence in the case of these appellants was manifestly excessive. In our judgment, the appropriate sentence which should have been imposed on the 26th of September was a community order with a significant requirement of unpaid work. So you've been, you've been talking to the people who, who are making those little videos. What's, what are they saying? How did it come about, first of all? Well, it's come about through a long process, really. Uh, people at the broadcasters um, have been trying for a long time to get extended coverage cameras into court. I worked for Sky News for a while and I was part of some of their experiments going back to 2003 at the Soham trial and also the Hutton inquiry, um, actually using stenography to kind of give a fuller picture of what was going on in in courts at that time and I was involved in those experiments. So it's been a long time coming, um, these, these things. In terms of the appeal court system, it's pooled between Sky, BBC, ITV and PA and one journalist um, sits there he's a you know an ex-newspaper court reporter now works um, for the tv companies and he just sits and films it all kind of live using a kind of delay system a bit like a radio station and he sort of edits out things live so people back at base can know that they can safely use material uh, that, that he's got from uh, from there successes of that scheme uh, i think people involved in the appeal courts the lawyers the judges can see that it's really unobtrusive when they walk into the court they often know it's being filmed and they look around they can't see where the cameras are so that kind of proves that that's one thing that's that's developed over the years but the downside I think is that the people oh go on sorry no I was just going to say I'm old enough to remember when television cameras first came into the house of commons and there was a very very similar debate then the cameras are going to get in the way they're going to obstruct debate and now where would we be without that stuff well, yeah, back actually in the early 90s, because in, in Scotland it's different, and there has been uh, filming in, in courts there for about 20 years. And when it first started, they had to build little hides in the court to hide the cameraman in, sort of almost out of cardboard or whatever. Uh, and so it has really changed since then. Um, the potential downside of this appeal thing is that the folks involved in it are a bit disappointed that it hasn't been used more in the national news. I think there's a feeling among national news broadcast editors that the footage of judges sitting there reading things out, it, it's just a bit dull. It doesn't make for great telly um and 
So they had did, were, did stress to me, though, that they were pleased at the take-up of regional um, television news. And they said that the, the BBC regions and the ITV have made great use of it. And that's been one of the real successes of this kind of appeal court coverage. Those programmes maybe can't really afford to send reporters all the way to London. It, it, it's been a help in that respect. Yeah, I mean, the the piece that I saw just recently was in the... Uh, he was delivering the judgment in the anti-fracking case. And the, the package on, on the BBC TV included um, the supporters dancing and singing outside the court, um, footage uh, of, you know, interviews with them. Uh, there was footage from um, from Preston New Road and so on. So there was lots and lots of material and Lord uh, Lord Burnett was, was one little clip inside that bigger package. You wouldn't want, you wouldn't want two minutes worth of that judgment, but in its place, it, it seems to work. And maybe that's the way that it would get used in future. Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to probably get to it for the criminal courts too. There's been a pilot scheme. It was not made for broadcast. It was made for kind of private consumption, if you like, of, of the Ministry of Justice. But uh, the same team from the broadcasters and PA went around eight of the Crown Courts uh, in England and Wales. They filmed uh, judges' sentencing remarks with just a kind of locked-off shot of the judge. Um, and I think that maybe is where we're going to get to at some point in the medium term, I think. But that'll start to become a kind of a, a more common sight, I think, on our, on our news programmes. So we're talking about kind of a sort of gradual technological adaptation and acceptance by the the the, the justice system, um, but is it going to take changes in the law as well? I mean, we we're talking about are we talking about having to change the contempt law, for example, to get this across the board? Well, I'd love to see a bit of that. I think one of the things that... Um, you, you and everybody else, I think. Well, probably. I think so. It's funny, though, because when you work as a journalist, as I did, and, and, and many others do, the people I interview, is they t- you say to them, well, what about the contempt of court law? And people were just... It's just a part of the furniture. It's been there for so long, since 1981. The law that bans photography has been there since 1925, before, you know, before TV. Um, uh, and I think that if you sort of take a step outside of it, like I'm able to do now working as a, an academic, is you're able to sort of look at it and say, well, why are these restrictions in place? Why why should they be there? Um, and I think a lot of the arguments that were made at the time that those laws were introduced, for example, in the contempt case, there was an argument that audio recorders shouldn't be allowed in court because they were clunky old tape decks at that time and they would make too much noise. Well, we all know that that's not the case anymore. Reporters take audio recorders into court every day in their pockets in the form of their phones. So why shouldn't they be able to set them up, say, record a judge's sentencing remarks a bit like a press conference in football or, or down at the police station um, I think that the technology has changed so much it's time to you know revisit some of that it may be too much to hope for but do you think uh, um, Francis Cairn Cross is going to address any of that you may be the only person who's made a submission about this particular issue but uh, if if that were to happen would it be part of a growing movement, do you think, that is going to see some changes in the next five years or so? Well, I hope so. That's what I want to put on the agenda, really. And when I sort of started to do this research as an academic, I was quite keen that I wasn't just going to kind of criticise the media or criticise journalists like a lot of academic books or academic studies about the media tends to. I would like to sort of try and be a bit more constructive and make some hopeful suggestions and proposals that people might find useful. And that's really the spirit in which, um, in which I've made that submission. Okay. Well, Richard, thanks very much indeed for for coming on the show. Um, That's it from, from, well, we're in Swinton at the minute, um, and back to the studio. So that's Richard Jones, and a big thank to him for coming on the podcast. And it'll be interesting to see whether Francis Cairncross or the bigwigs at the Ministry of Justice take up on any of those suggestions about... You know, about taking photographs unobtrusively with your phone and about all the, mm. the, the fact that the courts really have to come up to date with the fact that you don't need a massive, clunky reel-to-reel recorder to record audio and so on. So what, what do we make of it? 
Well, I think an ideal world is fantastic, uh, but you only have to look at all the front page to see uh, all the press gazette every week and every day to see judges uh, being very, very twitchy about what reporters do in mm -hmm. court. I've been in court and been with students mm -hmm. and been told I, we can't even take notes. Uh, ushers, yes, in fact, we were told some of that this morning. Yeah, wrongly, of course, yeah, and yeah. Uh, notoriously twitchy about use of phones and... Um, despite sort of agreeing with what Richard says I think we're kind of a long way off that um, unfortunately um, and I can't really see it happening very soon I also think as well that really uh, there'll be quite a lot of opposition from defence lawyers etc this idea of you know almost mm. posing for a photograph mm. when, when the judge says right you can now take a photograph mm. um, I think it's kind of maybe slightly unrealistic um, I don't know what about you Jez? Yeah I, I would agree I mean I, I from a journalistic point of view it's fantastic ideas and you know I mean I started reporting the courts long before digital devices mm. were, were small enough so you sort of it's ingrained in you that sort of you know culture of you know you can only really take notes you can't take photographs so I would welcome these changes but but as Dave has said that you know the culture within the courts is is quite a long way behind where we are, you know, the, we're in the digital age now, mm. but the courts are still, in some respects, the attitudes may be Analog. several, <laughs> yeah, several decades behind, yeah. aren't they? Really? Yeah. I mean, I guess one of Richard's points really is that it's not just the courts that are behind the times, but that some editors are behind the times, and that mm. um, perhaps if there was more pressure from the editors mm. of, of the, the local newspapers the to industry. say, well, well, could we get some moving pictures from here as well, yes. and can we add those to our websites sure. and so yeah. on? And I think that's the the direction of, of Richard's argument. I think it's good in the sense, you know, the way we, we, for transparency. Um, especially when there seems to be a move towards virtual courts mm -hmm. and you know um, single justice uh, single procedure courts etc yeah. where it seems to be less and less open to the public and scrutiny perhaps mm. then actually um, that could be a way of addressing that balance and maybe many editors are still very much from the legacy era you know and perhaps just accept the way things have always been but perhaps our students generation as they come up to the ranks and take over these kind of roles maybe they just won't have that kind of baggage around court reporting and, and say well it's ridiculous that we don't mm. use this technology so perhaps you know the next five or ten years we'll see that that shift okay you know? yeah. or they could so, have uh, court photographers court photographers yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so if There's you're listening, if you're one of those students, get a selfie um, with your barrister. Yeah, please. <laughs> so please do let us know what you think. I mean, do we do the courts need to move into the 21st century? Should we be allowing mobile devices to film and record and all the rest of it? Let us know on uh, on Twitter. You can tweet at us at rightsbang. So for today, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. And leave us a rating. It helps spread the word and helps others find us. You can tweet us, as I said, at RightsBang and let us know if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your reading which you want us to cover in future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll speak to you soon.